0: So pre-LOI, I, I, ideally it's possible. It's hard to obtain, I, I recommend trying to get the last three years of tax return along with the current PL statement, current balance sheet. And then if there's lots of accounts receivable and lots of accounts payable on the balance sheet, a receivable summary that shows how great each of those are.
1: There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifichi and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started.
2: Kevin. Eric, welcome back. Yeah. Hey man. Great to see you. Happy 2024 for the audience's benefit. I think we talk about this, but first episode of 2024, first recording of 2024. I don't know. It'll be a first episode drop, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully it's a step forward, not a step backwards. I think that's always the,
3: yeah, no, I think the goal, I think we've got some amazing guests coming up, some great stuff planned and we're kicking it off with none other than pioneer capital advisories, Matthias Smith.
2: Kevin, I'm trying to get one percent better this year. Is that how that works? <laughs> I,
3: trying to get
2: one percent better. I don't, think, better than last I don't year.
3: think you're supposed to focus on one percent for the entire year. I think they is that a like, day or a
2: year? I can't I, remember I what
3: the. I think it's supposed to be like a day or something, and see the compounding effects over wow. a year. It Feels don't like know. a lot. Feels like a ton. One percent um, for a year doesn't feel like a whole lot. Conversely, I
2: think you'd be like a trillionaire if you did that in money. So <laughs> fair. I don't know. Fair. Very feels ambitious. Yeah. Matthias. Matthias. Great, great conversation with Matthias. Matthias runs Pioneer Capital for, you know, I think a lot of the audience probably knows Matthias or is familiar yeah. with Matthias, but he left corporate like many folks are aspiring to do, like you and I did, and for, founded his own firm. He's a tremendous success in SBA debt brokering and I think he did somewhere in the neighborhood of like 50 million plus in transaction volume in 2023, which is really impressive yeah. for a, a one man shop. And I think he said he's aspiring to do 100 million in transactions this year, which is is remarkable. So we re- I really grill him. I think we both do. We get after him about SPA financing, how to find a good lender. What you should be looking for, the typical terms, how to approach a lender intelligently, what you need from the seller yourself, deal structuring, working capital. We talk about equity injections, where you can find the equity injection, what you need. I really, I learned a lot. I think about the SBA lending process and how buyers should be approaching lenders. What was yeah. your
3: takeaway, Kevin? Hundred percent. And it's it's so great to talk to someone like Matthias as well, who's outside of that sales seat, and you know, not to. Not to disrespect a lot of the direct lenders and, and BDOS out there, and, and the high quality ones really do have searcher's best interests at heart. But you know, like functionally, they are salespeople, right? And so to to step back with someone like Matthias, who's not necessarily in that sales role for a specific bank, to really break down what can you do, what are the options out there if you if you shop to different banks and things like that, is just so so helpful. I thought it was super informative. And and super insightful, just in kind of navigating the process and and what is actually possible that you may not learn if you're talking just to like one discrete bank. Hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent.
2: So great episode, Kevin. I think we should throw it over to Matthias and get 2024
3: rolling so we get that one
2: percent cooking. It. Let's go.
3: All right, with that, we'll see you all next week.
2: <laughs> <Maniac> <laughs> Matthias, and he's on Monday Millionaires today. Matthias.
3: That's, That's going to go viral. Like,
2: yeah. yeah, first first episode of 2024. H- Happy New Year, fellas.
3: Happy New Year to you guys, too. Good to be on with you. Just so we don't confuse our listeners, Eric, first recording of 2024, mm-hmm. maybe not first episode, in case you're yeah. looking at the calendar trying to figure out what happened in the first few weeks.
2: It's good clarification, Kevin. Our listeners are an easily confused bunch, so I appreciate you um, making it, sure that we... Indeed. we, we, we got to
3: break this down very, very... We don't
2: want anybody crazy. driving off the road or anything like that, but we That's have right. Matthias... Matthias Smith, Pioneer Capital in the house. Super excited to talk to Matthias. Matthias has been bird-dogging this podcast appearance like nobody I've ever (laughs) interacted with before. And so super excited to have him here to talk SBA lending and business buy. Matthias, you take us through your journey. Just give us kind of like the brief highlight. I think a lot of people who are listening are going to know who you are, but you were at SBA Lenders in a... Closing processing role, and then a couple of years ago, you started kind of doing what I think what, similar to what I did. You started talking about business buying and you know entrepreneurship through acquisition, SBA lending, from a position of passion and interest on social media, and it kind of just took off. And you were in Greece, I think, a couple of years ago, and you shot me a note, and you're like, "Hey, should I quit my job and start a firm?" And so I this was like, is your ah. fault, Eric. I was like, "Don't don't do anything hasty, Matthias," and I'm sure shit. Here we are two years later or however long, I guess, I don't, I don't even know how long uh, ago that was. And you are run, now running a successful venture in SBA Lennox. So take, take us through the, the brief background.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. First and foremost, thanks for handing me on. And I don't know if I had necessarily tried to bird dive disappearance. appearance. I think you wanted me on Eric <laughs> and I, I just get more nudge the ball across the was, um, you, you know, kind of similar to how, a uh, Defensive lineman pushes the running back into the end zone. But to yeah, your question, sure. yeah. Yeah, so you just you're right, you're you're right. like you,
3: you just blake corned it is what you're telling me. Mm. You just kind of <laughs> yeah. power powered it. Ba- okay. Ba- basically, Kevin.
0: Yeah, so of- kept going back to the, the journey so kept my background was working at F Lending, worked at four different banks, was at Live Oak for about half a year back in 2021. As a closer, Kev middle off its employee in the process from the time of deal will get approved up to your closing and funding. And it gave everything involved in that logistical point of the process. Was also a byline bank for about three and a half years, working with Tom Lyons over there and, and other people as well in um, that same kind of closer capacity. And then also two banks based in Wisconsin, one based in the Milwaukee area called First Bank Financial Center, and the last one called First Business Bank based in Madison. And essentially, Kip, what brought me from working at these banks to going off my own was in March of 2022, the day that I started my last bank, first business bank, I got introduced to f Twitter from Scott Oliver at Lewis and Campus, who we, we both know, can by the way of Twitter, He's mm-hmm. bank counseled on lots of different deals that we do. So he shot me this note and said, you know, hey, congrats on the, the new job, wish you all the best of luck that hey, by the way, here's a space on Twitter. Of all these business buyers looking to buy these small and medium-sized businesses, you should put constant out to network with these folks to try to generate deal volume for your bank. So right around that period of time, there's actually a lull in the pipeline of, of deal flow of my last employer. So I kind of took this as a battle cry of sorts to go out and kind of beat the drum to try to help curate and generate deal flow. And I basically, from all this constant and post that's been on Twitter, Treads and posts about business plans, projections, using a home equity line to keep your hosts off the SBLM, things like that. And all these DMs start to come in from people looking to buy these businesses, looking for financing. i then start then referring these buyers to my bank. And fortunately, halfway through the time that my last employer in April of 2022, I made the mistake of retweeting a tweet from my bank, at which point, I'm my head of marketing. And shortly after my head of compliance, Caught winded my Twitter presence and kind of went down this rabbit hole of sorts where they want to raid in and police my Twitter presence. And when I got to my two month review in May, it cascaded where I basically got told, you know, you either end to get off of Twitter or stop posting about banking SBN acquisitions unless you want to kind of vet your or vet money tweets by the bank first. So at that point in time, i referred refer the $15 million of referral to my bank for potential deals. And right after the two months review, while on vacation, Greece kind of like you mentioned towards the start of the discussion, Eric, I, I thought to myself, you know, here I am jittering all this inbound for my bank. They're really forward thinking about this. I'm basically getting told to remove myself from the bills funnel, which didn't really make any sense. And I thought, you know, I've worked at these four different banks, Live Oak, Byline. And these two other ones, I've kept in touch with the lenders that I've worked with as I've, they've gone from one bank to the next to the next to basically keep tabs on the different underwriting requirements, industries they're financing deals in, debt service coverage requirements, things like that. And then lastly, these banks in the SBA lending space, like First Bank, the Lake, Byline, et cetera, will pay referral fees to firms like mine to send deals to them. So I thought, you know, if here's a convergence to the market, i.e., SB Twitter, LinkedIn, similar, might skill sit in a revenue model. Why not kept formulated business around this and, and go out to help these business buyers go from point a to point B? What
3: what do you think it was, Matthias, specifically that had the bank uncomfortable? You mentioned the head of compliance. Was is there is there some regulatory concern? uh you know like let me pause i'm thinking about like capital raising and securities offerings and things like that right i mean there's regulations about what you're allowed to say publicly when you're allowed to say it how you're allowed to say it is it similar with banking like is is that what was going on in the background here or do you think this was something else as sort of cover to to you know hold you back from the type of business you were developing what do you think was going on there actually
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Great question, Kevin. I think there were kind of two different things going, going on in parallel. So the first being with the compliance side, you know, some of these posts like me explain how to use the home equity line to keep your house off the collateral for the SP yeah. loan. I think that they were kind of worried about that from a compliance standpoint if someone went and pulled one and then the bank required to lay on their house, that would come back and cause kind of issues for them, whether it be, someone doing a deal with, with First Business Bank or a different ledger, like, like a buy
3: line or, or a live oak or someone like else. So maybe some, then, of, could, maybe some of the advice they were thinking was, was running counter to the bank's interest. Like you're, you're advising people how to bring us a worse collateral package, sort of.
0: Yeah, yeah, more, more or less. And then give kind of adjacent to that, to the other question. I think part of it also had to do with the fact that they were worried that I was kind of spinning up my own thing, which honestly wasn't the intention at the
3: time. Yeah.
0: And they, they kind of saw me building a vertical of my own of sorts that I, I think they want to have control over.
3: Yeah. Interesting. Did you, did you ever consider approaching them and say, Hey, I don't want to like, I I'm, I'm sitting on this asset. I don't want to close the loans anymore i want to be a bdo and look how much business i can drive did that enter into the calculus at all or or once you had the review you were kind of like i'm i'm done with this
0: not yet that never really kept entered to my my mind just because i sense the conservatism at the institution yeah. kept leading up to this. in comparison with you know institutions where like ray at fund works or even tom at byline and it, it just didn't seem like an institution that would be congruent with what I wanted to do. Yeah, that's
3: fair.
2: So Matthias, you, you go down this, this journey of entrepreneurship. You rip the Band-Aid off. You quit your firm. You, you had the benefit of having a meaningful social media following at that point in time, which a lot of people don't have. Tell us about the experience of transitioning from corporate guy working from a bank of all places to now being, you know, a lone wolf out here originating business primarily from the internet
3: and specifically how terrified were you eric is eric has publicly shared his story several times of standing in the shower literally this like one moment where he's like holy shit this is either the best or absolute worst idea i've ever made in my life naked and afraid what what, what was that what was that moment for you did you have that moment anyway yeah tell tell us about that journey
0: so the the kid at the point in time, so, so basically I kept walking through and give the, the people watching this, like the, the back story. So I was in Greece, and basically the, the night before I put my notes, I kept boozing up with my wife, like red right mm-hmm. answer, Cameron, Cameron and Cruz. What and were you I, drinking? I said, like, it was some sort of red wine. Yeah, red was, wine. Was, okay. Details
3: matter. Those good, those good Greek red wines, they're... Well, known, was a very
0: course. good drink friend and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to quit my job tomorrow. So I, I got my, on my phone, sent an email to my boss, the, the managing director of the FBA division there that I think either was fired or got let go shortly after this, but not directly related to my story. But anyways, so I sent this notes off and I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to give this six months. I'm going to see if I can build a business doing this. If not, I'm going to go back. And try to get another job and hope that the bank doesn't look me look at me as too much of a maverick that i can actually get gainful employment somewhere else
3: so the, the so, first can, can i pause you there for a second matthias you're you're yeah. on vacation with your wife and you literally email to quit your job what what's your wife saying to you about this 100 <laughs> supportive all in is there some yeah. trepidation is she like matthias she was, are we sure like yeah
0: she's she kind of shitting
3: yourself over
0: it to be honest. Okay. But, but but it's no, like I mean, this, it, is,
3: it, this is important. So many entrepreneurs out there have a spouse that we don't talk enough about like how important that is to to have on board. So I I'm I'm genuinely curious how that conversation went with your wife.
0: Yeah. No, so she just kept shitting herself over it, but that, you know, hey, this will be fine. I have a couple hundred thousand dollars saved up. If if this doesn't work out, like I can I can float it and th- things will be fine, is basically what yeah. I said. So, yeah, the, the are, are, do you think you three... think
2: you're employable now, Matthias? You think you can go back now? You think I would take not you?
0: hire myself. I, I think the <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I honestly would not hire myself, Eric. I think maybe to be you, fair, I wouldn't
3: hire Eric. So, you know, there's that.
0: What, what, what about me? Would you hire me, Kevin?
3: Oh, hell yeah. You, you can <laughs> you could drive some business and engagement. I love it.
2: Yeah, I so, got it. Uh, I got it. As an aside, as an aside, guys, I got a text yesterday from a, uh, a head of a practice group for a prominent DC firm who I'm friends with, and he he texted me and he said, "Let me pull it up here." I, I, it was one of the nicest, like, but like funniest things I've ever. Seen. He said, "Your talents were so wasted as a law firm associate," and I thought that was I thought that was nice, but it was also like a little like, and you're never coming back to big law. Yeah. So good luck out there. <laughs>
0: I don't, I don't think I'd hire you, Eric, if I was the head of a capital market team at Kirkland-Ellis or similar. I, I think you're unemployable for life at this point, honestly. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Matthias. I appreciate
0: <laughs> that. Take you, man. Right, um,
1: well, I won't think about but yeah, that Kevin, back to your...
0: <laughs> But But yeah, back to your question, Kevin. Like The first three or four months was just me like pounding the pavement, So I like, reached out to people on Twitter, some of whom had DM me up to this point in time. Hosting, like, hey, I've started the loan brokerage firm. I'm basically gonna help you as the buyer, find the right bank for the financing, and just pounding the, the freaking pavement more or less on Twitter, reaching out to lenders I'd worked with, like people like Tom Wines, Rager and others to get hammer referral agreements with them and basically just trying to get my name out there. Just constantly freaking pounding the pavement. And it wasn't until mid-September of 2022 that I closed my first deal. And I think the commission from it was like $10,500. So I went from like a byline when I left and it was end of March or April of 22, I was at 95. Then I took a pay cut to go first business bank. There's, there's a long story there, because not relevant. to this, I was at 88,000. And then basically from, from that point when I got my last paycheck in May, no money in the door up until September, like ten thousand five hundred dollars. So,
2: so at this wow. point, your wife is like, we've made a terrible mistake,
0: and yeah, yeah. So, so my yeah my <laughs> so, yeah so my, my wife is more conservative than me, and like like from a financial standpoint, I mean, she's going to be a, a W two employee her whole life unless she decides to quit, which she could if she wanted to. But irrespective of that. Yeah, she, she was worried. So basically, I was communicating constantly as the pipeline was building, you know, here's here's what's likely going to close. Here's when these monies will come in. Th- things will be okay. Th- things will be fine.
3: Essentially. Yeah. And how Got long it. did it take after the commission started rolling in for, for her to come around and be like, wow, this is incredible. Good job. You know, like, I assume at this point, She's hundred yeah. percent behind you. Loves what you're building. I don't. I don't mean to harp too much on the dynamic with the spouse, but I just I know it's something so rarely talked about.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was about three to four months, like shortly after that, where she saw things continuously, cut, like coming into the pipe. Yeah. Like I, I mean, I wasn't sharing poor names or anything like like that for us, but just like, hey, this is so how much I'm gonna make when this closes. Things yeah. things will be fine.
3: I so. we, and we've talked we, we've talked for a minute about your spouse. Like what about yourself, Matthias? Did, did you have that moment between quitting in April and September where you were like I mean, you're just stressed, you're not sleeping, you're pulling your hair out. You're like I've made the the worst mistake of my life or or were or did you have all the confidence in the world that I just need to put in the time. This is going to be 100% successful. Like talk talk about that.
0: Yeah. It was honestly the former. I mean, I'd, I'd be bullshitting both of you and the viewers later, and I, I think it's the former for, for most people, honestly. Like, there were nights I woke up that I'd stare at the ceiling and I'd be like, fuck, was, was this the right boob or not? Yeah. So.
3: Yeah, no, it's 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 tough. I mean, we've, we've talked about that. I mean, we and we had every indication in the world at the start, similar to you, that the business was going to come, you know, just by the sheer volume of DMs and stuff. But it doesn't, until that cash flow is like really moving and building, it does not take the stress away. That's you know to 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 be out there on your own without the safety net of every two weeks you're getting that direct deposit.
0: Right, but, and in another point too, like as well as like you know with with firms have kind of like our business model, right, being like service providers, project based revenue. It's not like you know you own like a, a business of contractually recurring revenue yeah. unless you're doing. External ongoing legal services and in, our advisory work, so it's like every deal is literally its own cash flow, and then between the time you sign up a deal, between closing, there a 110 things that could go wrong that could be it.
3: Yeah,
2: it's you. Well, it's it's project based revenue, and it's and it's in, inconsistent and unreliable project based revenue. So it's. It's fascinating. And let's let's talk about that, Matthias. Let's talk about SBA lending because obviously your your you know expertise at this point you know is, is in a variety of areas. I think with small business acquisitions, but SBA lending is what you do. And I think a lot of people listening to this are going to be curious about SBA lending. I, I remember reflecting a couple years ago when I was introduced to entrepreneurship through acquisition and small business buying and learning about like where would you get the capital to buy a business? You know how would I? Get the down payment, collateralized loans versus you know cash flow based loans. I think that's a big misconception for people who aren't familiar with the space. And then ultimately, you know, I think the biggest hurdle for a lot of people is the equity injection piece. So let's kind of talk. Let's let's unpack SPA lending, Matthias. I'm Should we buyer. start with equity injection, or or were you on we, we can, but you know, I think let's 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 think this through logically. I'm a buyer. I want to buy a small business. I you know have found one that I think is attractive. And now I'm approaching a bank for the very first time or a broker for the very first time to try to figure out how to get the capital to do that. What's the first step for somebody who's completely green, has no exposure to SBA lending to kind of put themselves in a position to, to go get that debt?
0: So at the point in time, you have a deal that you and the buyer plan to pursue. You want to have the financial package of your personal financial information, the seller financial and then basically give a, its source and use modeled for how you're planning to, you know, how much SBA financing you're looking for, seller financing, down payment fund, and where the money is going.
2: Through. Got it. So let's take those one by one. So the first thing you mentioned was the seller financial statements. What type of financial statements do I want to request from the seller, pre-LOI, post-LOI, whatever, at any point in time to go to the bank with the right, documents to to start the financing process?
0: Yeah. So so pre-LOI, ideally, if possible, I I recommend trying to get the last three years of tax returns along with the current P&L statement, current balance sheet. And then if there's lots of accounts receivable and lots of accounts payable on the balance sheet, a receivable summary that shows how current each of those
2: Got it. And in, in your experience, is that's something that sellers typically have. I'm a buyer. I say, Hey, give me a three years tax returns, a P and L balance sheet and a AR and AP summary to, to determine the currentness of it. And they're able to fork that yeah. over. How, 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 how does that process usually go in practice?
0: It, it honestly depends on how far at market the deal is. The sophistication of the broker and how, how good quality the financials are for the seller. Like most sellers honestly aren't going to have AR and AP agings readily available. They're going to have to ask their accountants to put those together. On tax returns, if you're dealing with, you know, a very competitive deal, one lets it buy an investment bank or someone like a Clint Fury on Twitter, good luck getting the tax returns. It's going to have to be like a more of a pop offside broker to get those pre
2: Got it. Okay. So, but essentially you want to have a good summary of the seller's financial situation, three years of tax returns. And are we, are we now exiting out of kind of the COVID year tax return issue that we had two years ago where it was like, okay, some of these are massively inflated. Some of them are massively deflated. Have you seen that kind of age out or are we, are we still dealing with that?
0: Yeah. So, we're We're basically at the tail end of that at this point in time because now from a financial standpoint, banks are going to be looking at twenty twenty one twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three whereas before last year twenty twenty was still getting with it, but most most states are carving that out and just kind asking for what the impact of the pandemic was in the business yeah and are
2: we are we finding that the are we so the twenty threes 23s... Effectively, if I'm going to do a deal now in 2024, I need to have my, my seller needs to have their 23s done in order to get through underwriting?
0: Yeah, so if this was a process, banks aren't requiring the 2023 tax return yet, but they're asking if, if it's available. So like most of the banks that I work with, they're wanting to see the full 2023 P L and then also wanting to know like if the valuation of the business in the underwriting of the buyer on the deal, basically, you, if the deal playing hinges on the 2023 numbers, the banks are wanting to see the tax return. If it works in 2022, in 2021, or, or in 2022, they, they aren't pushing for 2023, if, if the answer is the mm. question.
2: It, it does. It does. And so they're able to kind of think, think through a little bit more critically on debt service coverage ratios, which, which we could talk about, and then also valuation metrics and what they expect. So it doesn't necessarily have to be hard and fast. I need 2023s. It has out of 2023. They're kind of able to think through. C- correct. Yeah. The second thing you mentioned, and Kevin, feel free to jump in here, but so seller financing, yep. and then you mentioned organizing the deal. And you, you used an expression that I want to unpack, which is sources and uses. Think through the sources and uses, kind of the structuring and the seller's contribution to the deal. Talk about the typical deal structure that you see, and then tell us what sources and uses is.
0: Yeah, so as far as have typical deal structure, I would say generally speaking, I see most banks lending anywhere between 80 to 85% of the total project cost. So basically taking the purchase price of the business and then adding in all the other stuff being financed, then generally speaking, the seller, having a seller's note, with payments on it out of the gate for somewhere between five to 10% of the total use of the fund. And then the last, the last 10%, the equity injection or the, the down payment, what it's also called, either coming from cash from the buyer indoor investors, or being some combination of cash from the buyer and investors coupled with standby seller debt. So a seller's note that either has no payments on it for the first two years, and then payments in year three three year 10, or the, the classic trademark now full standby seller's note, which is the seller's note that has interest only accruing year one through year three with no payments until the SBA is paid off.
2: Okay. So just to summarize, so you're saying typical purchase price 80 to 85% is being financed through the bank in the actual total project cost, which is your purchase price plus the other stuff that's being financed. What other stuff is typically financed in that 80 to 85%? Yes. The
0: the other stuff being financed, Eric, is the, the permit working capital. So basically cash that you need to run the business that you're getting from the bank finance the SBA loan of which the amount just depends on what you need. The closing costs for the bank. So basically the bank attorney fees, due diligence searches, appraisal, things like that. The SBA guarantee fee, which is essentially the, the equivalent of private mortgage insurance for seeking an SBA loan. And then also whatever your attorney fee is, like you guys take for example, and or the financial due diligence, cost, if you're getting a quality of earnings report to validate the financials, which I almost always recommend.
3: What's the most common stuff you see when searchers come to you that they're, that they're missing, that they're not thinking about or not remembering or not appreciating as an expense that, that they need to account for in the sources and uses?
0: yeah so honestly kevin it's across the board i've seen some people that don't know you can finance working capital into an sp loan which is honestly more of a rarity but i've seen a few of those recently where that's not going for i've seen other people where they have a super low number for bank closing costs like five thousand dollars or something similar and they're kept under budgeting there or someone where they're buying let's, let's say they're buying an HVAC company they're planning to do it as an asset purchase, and there's 15 vehicles or 10 vehicles, not accounting for what the vehicle transfer transactions are going to be. So all all different things across the board. Honestly.
3: Got it.
2: Let, let's let's make it a point to come back to working capital because I want to unpack that a little bit more and think about the difference between the SBA express loans and then what's typically kind of in that total project cost working capital. So that's interesting to me. But you also mentioned the guarantee. So SBA debt for the audience benefit is is guaranteed or supported by the small business administration. The debt itself does not come from the small business administration. It is back the the banks lend them individually. And assuming that the bank adheres to the standard operating procedures of the SBA, then the SBA will support that debt in the event of a default. And typically, I think the percentage, and I always get this wrong, I just need to like write it five times, but it's like 75 or 80% of the total loan amount that they'll actually backstop assuming that the lender does it correctly. We could talk about, you know, lending guidelines and how everybody kind of does it a little bit differently, but the, the, the lender pays a fee to the SBA to support that guarantee that percentage just recently changed. But tell us what the SBA guarantee currently is and what percentage of the deal um, you have to pay.
0: Yeah. So the SBA so the guarantee fee percentage, unless it's a, Really small loan in, in a couple hundreds of thousands is almost always going to be seventy five percent. So if you're thinking a million dollar S B loan, the government would insure seventy five percent of that. That's the portion of the bank can either keep on the balance sheet or sell in the bond market. Not to go down any rabbit hole. And then the other twenty five percent is unguaranteed or not insured, and that's the part that the capital at risk for the bank. Now, if you're a buyer, say, buying a business that does international trade or international sales, like right now I'm working with someone that, that's buying a business that sells products to Canada. If you can prove in your business plan that you're either going to sustain or grow that international sales after you buy the business, then the bank can get a 90% guarantee and their credit exposure goes down from 25% to 10%.
2: But not from the you know I care less about the bank's perspective. I'm more curious from the buyer's perspective. What what amount? What's the what's the amount of the fee that you pay to support that guarantee?
0: It's yeah, it's proportional to the loan, Eric. So there's a there's a formula on a on a spreadsheet on the SBA's website. It it changes like it it varies based on the exact loan amount. Off the top of my head, I I honestly can't remember the formula. <laughs>
2: For, for the audience's benefit, there is a calculator that's available online um, in Excel spreadsheet formulas. If you want to get the specific amount of the SBA guarantee fee for your purposes of your transaction, you can calculate it to kind of try to run the numbers and, and budget. But suffice it to say, Matthias, sounds like the upshot is that can be financed in your sources and uses, so you're not necessarily paying out of pocket. Your equity injection, which again has to either be 5 or 10%, depending on the, the lender, is adjusted proportionally.
0: Just to pause there for a second, the 5% yeah. or the 10%, that's no longer a thing here. So there's no longer a minimum cash floor that has to go into the deal for, for the audience's benefit and, and for the editorial notes. There is now essentially the FBA did away with the minimum cash floor. So the cash or the 10% equity injection can either come from a combination of cash or the full standby sellers new or the partial standby sellers new. One of those three things. The the minimum cash flow is now lender discretion.
2: So in theory, Matthias, it sounds like you're saying you can bring nothing to the table cash-wise and have the seller finance the full portion of the equity injection. How how often are number one? I, I you know I don't know that I would recommend that, just caveat for our audience's benefit. Obviously, the more debt you take, whether it's in the form of a seller note or a SBA note, you know, you're higher leverage, higher risk. So something to be aware of You're not financial advice, not a financial advisor, but, you know, something to think about. But what you're saying is the SBA itself is saying you could theoretically bring 0% to the table and the bank could approve it in accordance with the SOPs. But what are you seeing the banks actually do? How many banks right now are saying, hey, great, you've got 100% leverage in the form of 90% SBA, 10% seller financing, we'll approve that.
0: Yeah, phenomenal question. So most 90% of banks that I work with wanted to see the buyer group, meaning like the, the operator, indoor investors collectively, Bring a minimum of five percent cash to the deal proportional to this whole project cost so basically half of the 10 percent equity injection i had one deal that was approved that sputtered out and died due to the seller canceling this transaction where it was a 23 year old buyer buying a million dollar landscaping company. he was to the buys now of his own cash in and the rest to get the 10 percent down was going to come in the form of the 24 months partial standby seller note, but from the lenders that I know, Eric and Kevin, they're all only wanting to see the no capital in to the deal for the key employee buyout type deal. So, like, say you, Eric, work for Kirkland Ellis and are working the looking to take out a five million dollar SB loan to buy Kirkland Ellis, which would wouldn't get you there for what you needed, but basically. Assuming that you could buy it for valuation, where it would cash flow accordingly, that's a transaction most banks would consider with no capital.
2: Understood. So, so it sounds like if you are planning to buy a small business, you want to be thinking about having at least five percent of the purchase price of that in the form of cash. What if I don't, Matthias, what if I don't have any capital to bring to the table? What are, what are the options that you're seeing in the, in the form of investors and other ways around to, to, to get the, you know, get, get the deal done, but without bringing, you know, a full 5% or, yep. you know, I, I don't, I don't suspect that there's anybody who's going to be able to buy without putting any skin in the game. If I'm an investor, yeah. even, I'm probably not going to back somebody who doesn't have anything put in, but w- what are you seeing as workarounds through investors or otherwise?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So lots of lots of searchers out there, many of whom I work with and, and similar ones that you guys work with as well, will do the equity raise for their deals. So they'll basically go out to either a combination of friends and family, professional colleagues, or now there's honestly a pretty big community of self-funded search investors. It's, and for the, the, the viewers watching this, self-funded is kind of a misnomer because it means that you're self funding the down payment but lots of it essentially SBA finance deals there's a, a huge network of people out there on platforms like search funder SMB Junction and and otherwise that will invest in these deals where buyers are seeking out B loans so generally what I tell buyers is that if they have a deal where it's a good industry they can put together a good business plan, explaining how their professional skills are transferable to the business. And if they're offering favorable investors terms, they'll be able to find the capital. Open.
2: So Matthias, I go out to, the, to the, the equity investors that you mentioned through whatever means. They say, yes, I'll give you the full 5% for the down payment. So I've got 5% coming from equity in, in, investors. I've got 5% coming from the, the seller and then the rest coming from the SBA. Is that done deal? Or, or do the banks have issue with that construct as well?
0: Lots of the banks that I work with are fine with the whole equity rates coming from investors and, and don't have a minimum that they want to see from the sponsor or, or from the person buying the business operating it. There there are a handful that want to see capital in from the personal guarantor or from the buyer, but that's a, a big specific requirement, not an SBA mandate. Got it.
2: Got it. Okay. Interesting. So the, the last piece of it that you mentioned is the seller financing. So you said, I'm, I'm a prospective buyer. I approach a bank. I've got the seller's financials. I've got the deal structured, uh, sorry, not the seller's financials, but my own personal financials is the last bucket. I approach a bank. What do I want to have lined up? What do I need to show them? What, what are they going to care about in terms of me as a buyer?
0: Yeah. So I, I'd say the most important thing or one of the most important things is, is your resume and essentially kind of what skills do you as the buyer bring to the table? So for example, are you coming from like a finance, investment banking, consulting type background, where essentially you bring those strategic financial planning, kind of capital allocation and or just strategy skills to the deal? Are you coming from an ops background? Maybe you've been a GM at a company before. You've managed people, you've managed teams, you know how to work with people, and how to lead teams, things like that. I, I'd say the resume is one of the top two most important things. And then Kevin, adjacent to that is going to be your personal financial statement. And for the banks that want to see capital into the deal from the buyer, essentially after you've put your capital into the buyer, how much do you have left over in post-closing liquidity? So specifically how much cash you have left in the bank after you've made your portion of the down payment because they, they don't want you to be a kid stuck out in the streets and and not people afford your fixed expenses. Yeah.
2: And so if I'm a typical, you know, guy or gal that's worked in corporate for a decade, my personal financial statement looks like, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand bucks saved up in, you know, 401k, you know, some meaningful amount of cash. I've got a house that's got, you know, a few hundred thousand bucks in equity, is that enough to get the deal done? Do they look at this, the the retirement accounts and the the home equity and say, hey, this is going to you know provide the you know you, Mr. Buyer, with sufficient cash reserves in the event of a crisis, or or do they really care about post closing? Like, what's the best way? You know, assuming that you're not a person that comes from a wealthy background, you know, what's the best best you know, and let me let me phrase it like this: If I'm starting from scratch today, and in the next five years I want to buy a small business, and I want to position my balance sheet reasonably with what I can do over the next couple of years, what would you advise somebody to, to do? How would they structure that?
0: Yeah, so my recommendation there, Eric, and, and great question, would be to have would not to be would be to not have all the liquidity tied up in retirement. Because that essentially limits you to being able to do like a, a roster or force, what they call it, where essentially you're using the equivalent of like a retirement special purpose vehicle to buy the business, which limits what you can do as far as entity structure. And there's cost and tax implications on that front. And then if you wanted to basically pull funds out of that, and this again is not retirement or tax advice, it's not. A CPA, financial planner, or similar, there is going to be tax implications associated with doing that. So, back to your question, I would say, you know, have a good chunk of that liquidity in either cash reserves or taxable brokerage fund versus just all your retirement.
2: Okay, got it. So let's. So, so Mathias, I've done all this. I've got the seller's financials. I've got a well-structured deal. I've got my personal financial statements lined up. I'm under LOI and now I'm looking for a bank. What am I, where am I going? What, what am I looking for?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if you're doing this have on your own, I mean, my top recommendation would be to go and be and type in top 100 nationally ranked SBA lenders and look through that SBA lender rankings list to do your initial scrub of diligence as to which players are kind of bigger ones in the market. And then from there, kind of do your outreach directly after doing your own research. And so which ones of those are established, established players in the search fund kind of business buying space? I um, mean, it, it looks like you're pulling your screen up here. so please.
2: Yeah, and I'm, for the audience, those who are listening, I've got on the screen here, I, I Googled, like Matthias top 100 SBA lenders. And it looks like Go I found the SBA a,
0: website link directly. Yeah, that, that one there. Lend, yeah.
2: Lender reports. Okay, so SBA.gov slash partner slash lender slash lender reports, 7A and 504 lender reports. And cutting to the chase with the audience's benefit, the acquisition financing through the SBA is the 7A product. The yep. 504 product is a similar product, but it is used for acquisitions in the real, in the real estate space. So I assume we're clicking the 7A and 504 reports. And now, what am I looking at here, Matthias? It's going to tell me who I do and don't want to work with.
0: Yeah, scroll down a little bit there. So so basically, Eric, what you'll see here is, or or scroll back up towards the top. Essentially, think of this, viewers watching this, as the equivalent of a a scoreboard for, for deal volume, right? So which banks are doing the most transactions or the most deals in the FBA space? And then, adjacent or kind of related point to this is looking at the average loan size column. And of the deals these banks are doing, what is the average kind of deal size, right? So, if you're buying with these businesses, generally speaking, lots of these deals are going to be kept kind of close to, I'd say, at least the average loan size of a million dollars. Pretty typical in the space. So, if you're looking down this list and you see banks kept kind of doing larger deals, those may be ones to gravitate to, or ones that are good because they're suitable for you as a buyer versus banks that are doing smaller deals or maybe doing working capital. and stuff. Okay. One irrelevant comment to this is sometimes with this list, some of these banks where the average loan size is higher is doing parts of the fact that they're doing lots of commercial real estate deals. So, real estate, generally speaking, they are financing a hotel it could be a couple million dollars. So that can skew the two. So those banks, not all these banks have larger average loans are doing these cash flow search fund deals. Some are doing commercial real estate deals. So essentially for the purpose of the viewers looking at this, initial cash should be kind of looking at the SBA lender ranking. Second cash should be the average loan size. And then from there, figure out which of those banks, the higher average loan size are doing search fund
2: deal versus commercial real estate
0: acquisitions and
2: similar. Got it. So it sounds like the upshot here is I want a bank that does a lot of 7A acquisition financing in the search space. And I can surmise that by looking at total amount of deals done. And then I can kind of vet out who is not. Doing acquisition business buying finance by looking at average loan size, and then once I've got banks that do a lot of total deals and a lot of larger acquisition financing, then I can kind of do, do an individual deep dive on those and make sure that those are players that are actively involved in the search space. And it's interesting; it's, uh, we see a lot. We see a lot of familiar names: Live Oak Bank, Byline Bank. Who else is on here? Who Who else is on here that are major players, Matthias? And you know, feel free to yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 So like, like first internet bank on there is a, a pretty major player. If you go down further on the list, you might have to scroll it notes a few times. You'll see our friend Ray drew with Fundex next solution. And then kind of, you know, various banks gathered through this list. And then I, have to, I have to be careful not to get, give up too much of my secret thoughts here, but, but yeah, there, there are some pretty good search fund players here on this list. as you scroll up and down.
2: Got it. So then, so then, so I approach a bank, and and obviously, you know, you as a broker, you you are a solution. I'll I'll just give you a quick plug. Matthias is a tremendous business broker. There are a lot of great banks, but you know, you can obviously approach Matthias who can help you through this process, and then the fee. My understand this is not a commercial for Pioneer, but just by way of background, since you're on the call here, there is a, you know the fee that will be associated with you being a liaison for the process is then paid by the bank. So ultimately, you don't have to Correct. do all of this. It's just just good background. And well, just one, one correction: of loan broker not business
0: broker? When, when, when you, low did, low did I you did say business, business broker? Oh, yeah. business I
2: would <laughs> never besmirch your good name like that, Matthias, by <laughs> referring to you as a, a business broker. But so okay, so. I I so and just to am, before before you there.
3: move on from that point, just to contextualize and again not to give away the secret sauce, so feel free to give a range, but like how how many banks do you look to or look at working with, etc.? Like if a if a searcher comes to you, are are you looking at two or three banks for them? Are you looking at, you know, 15 banks for them? Contextualize for listeners the the benefit of going with a loan broker over direct to the bank and how much kind of legwork that saves.
0: Yeah. So it it depends so based on the deal structure, the industry, and like the the debt structure. So like what percentage of bank financing the the buyer is looking for relative to the deal, total deal size, those factors could impact how many banks would be a good fit for a deal and, and how many would be a good fit to finance it. Okay. So for some deals that might be as low as three or four, if someone's looking at a deal where there's 90% financing ask, 1.15 debt coverage, and they're looking to do the, you know, the full standby or the partial standby for the part of the equity stack. Yep. If it's a deal where it's like 75 to 80% bank financing, 1. 1. 1.3, debt, 1.4 debt coverage, good industry, recurring revenue, not project-based, that could
2: be 10 to 15 different banks of possibility. Got it. Got it. And let's, let's pause for a second. I want to talk about debt service coverage ratios because I think that's interesting. But let's talk about what we're looking for. Obviously, we now have looked at the list. We know who does a lot of these deals. And so we can kind of, I guess, surmise, and maybe this is, 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 is you know, not necessary after we've looked at this list. But I'm looking for a lender. I, you know, I'm going to buy an accounting firm right? That accounting firm doesn't have any collateral at all. It's yeah. got contracts with customers. It's got employees and it's got a name that's existed for a decade plus. That's literally all it has. How do I go and get that financed if there isn't any collateral for the for the lender to place a lien on?
0: Yeah. Yeah. A- absolutely phenomenal question, Eric. So the banks in the search fund, they are focused first and foremost on the cash flow of the business that you're buying. And essentially, if there's going to be enough cash flow to repay the debt based on the deal structure that you as the buyer are planning to utilize for the business purchase, if, if that makes sense.
2: It does. It does. So, one of the things that I think is interesting about this, and one of the guardrails that I think is in place that not enough people appreciate, it's not talked about enough, is that a really good SBA lender has seen thousands of deals. I mean, more than that. They've seen, you know, they look at deals all day, every day. They know what a really good deal looks like. They know what a good business looks like. They know what a qualified buyer looks like. And so I always tell my clients, I'm like, Hey, there are about five or six people that you would want to realistically talk to. And if all five or six of them say, Hey, no, I'm not going to give you the money for this. That should be a pretty pretty good message to you. So one of the things I think is interesting is that the cash flow lender as opposed to a collateral lender, there are some collateral SBA lenders that will say, hey, you've got you know, a bunch of equipment. So what do we care if you're qualified to buy this business or if it's a good business? We're going to put a bunch of liens on the construction equipment. And if you don't pay the debt back, we'll sell the construction equipment. So who cares? But the rest of them that understand that these are most of the time asset light businesses that don't really have any stuff They've got to actually look at the business and say, is this business and this buyer going to be capable of, of, of paying me back through the cash flow? And so, how many collateral versus cash flow lenders are out there, Matthias? And do you ever work with ca- uh, collateral based lenders? And in what situations do they make sense if so?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, a true collateral lender, I mean, it would be like an ABL, like asset. Based financing type lender where you're getting leverage or financing against accounts receivable, inventory, things like that. Um, my, my comment on that, Eric, would be so the, the true capital lenders are ones that will go up to the full $5 million or stretch above with the SBA and do the SBA plus conventional structure. And they're focused really solely on the cash flow of the that you're buying. There are some banks where in their credit guidelines, they have a maximum unsecured exposure amount that they can't stretch above maybe say one and a half to two and a half million. And that's just get a, a truly arbitrary bank credit exposure guideline prerogative or requirement. Now I don't know if that really answers the question, but the the vast majority of banks I work with will go up to the full fund.
2: So Matthias, you mentioned the five million dollar Cap. And for the audience's benefit, in most instances, the SBA lending right now is capped at $5 million in total lending. Is there any exceptions to that, Matthias? If I want to buy a $6 million business, am I capped at $5 million, or are there any workarounds for that?
0: Yes, yeah, so there there are two different workarounds, Eric. So one is there are some banks that will do the SBA seven to eight, so up to the $5 million plus well, what's called a Perry Pursue structure. So basically, they'll do Conventional debt over and on top of the five million, the bank that will do that are has more limiting, so there aren't a whole lot of them, but they're out there. So that's one option at your disposal. When you goes real quick, banks, Matthias, essential- what is,
2: what does is peripassu mean? What is that? It's Latin. Is it? What what is? It, just tell us what a peripassu loan is first of all. Is it so you, you got yeah. five million in SBA and then what's what do you mention the conventional piece? What does the conventional piece look like to get you this to the six million?
0: So not being a legal scholar like like you, Eric, I know the exact Latin definition, but carrying pursuit essentially means that you're you're coupling the conventional that over and above the FBA. So you're you're doing the, the five million plus the conventional on top
3: of it. Yeah, five it, it, plus effectively it means it it means equal e- in rights. So when you think about traditional. Traditional debt. If you're layering multiple stacks of debt, there's a there's a hierarchy, and you hear about subordination and things like that. So, subordination just means instead of one being higher in the hierarchy, they're they're equal. Right? So they kind of run parallel in in rights and things like that. Yeah, so the the purest
0: view, the pure okay. SBA puts conventional is is one option at your disposal, Eric. When you get to that level of debt. The debt service coverage requirements increase from what they are yeah. with those same banks when you're at or below the five million of, of debt, which would just be through the SBA debt.
2: Okay, so I'm getting to the six million so the bucks, debt- and obviously there's equity injection considerations, but five million in SBA, and then the the rest would be a conventional loan on equal footing, so it'd have the same terms and conditions, and it'll be side by side with the SBA debt but a conventional product that you said only some, not very many lenders do this, right? It's a pretty the, rare there's product. A good hand,
0: there's a good handful of them. And just one segue back to that, Eric, not all banks that do these will do the same terms and conditions. For some of them, they might want to see the amortization be shorter with the faster burn-off to get rid of that conventional exposure. It's just subject to the bank specifically that does it.
2: How how big can I go, Matthias? And I, wanna, I know we... Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah,
3: I was about to ask that very question. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, how much can we how much can we Yeah, take so now? I, want to, go, to I the, want to buy a twenty million dollar business. Can I get it?
0: Uh, yeah. So of the banks that know that do the I I'd say the upper bound would be a four million plus minus somewhere in there. I, I know banks that will do the insert hotels that will stretch up to ten million with the five well, million for, SBA seven $5 plus five million conventional.
2: So you you said 4 million is what they'll do you mean 4 million above the SBA 5 million or what what do you what do you mean total yeah
0: 4 million above the FBA 5 million so so okay. 5 plus 4 Gen- generally speaking plus minus so, so you
3: could conceivably be... be doing if you, if if you combine with equity raise seller financing etc i mean you could conceivably be buying a 10 11 12 million dollar business Still using an SBA loan plus a peri-passu conventional loan. Yeah, correct.
2: So Matthias, before we move on, you mentioned that there is a second way to, to exceed the $5 million. What, what is that?
0: So the second way, Eric, is buying businesses in different NAICS codes or different industries. If you buy an HVAC business and use the full SBA 5 million, you could buy a plumbing company, utilize $5 million there. Then you could buy an e-commerce business, do $5 million there. and there. Kind of going down the line, in, in preference or given background for the viewers, I have yet to help a client do $5 million multiple industries so just to throw that out there. But with the new SBA guidelines, supposedly that's something that you can do.
2: Got it. And for the audience's benefit, and Kevin, I know you know this cold but it's the North American Industry like? Classification System, N-A-I-C-S. And it is a, it is a standard industry categorization okay. that's used throughout... I thought it was a U.S. federal government thing. I actually just learned it's not. It's ca- Canadian, U.S., it's all of North America for industry classifications. But my understanding is that you can finance up to the $5 million multiple times using different N-A-I-C-S codes. So fascinating.
3: Fascinating. It, it, it'll, be inter- it'll be interesting to see and, and keep track of how that plays out, right? It's one of those things that it's hard to know, was that a, is that a mistake? And are they, are they going to catch it and close it? Or are they actually going to allow that to happen? But, well,
0: believe me, Kevin, there are clients I'm working with now that are working to execute under this new structure. I love that. And, I love that. and once one deal closes, I will be posting it on Twitter and LinkedIn.
2: Awesome. Let's go. Looking forward. To I'm it. excited. And, and one thing to, kn- to note for the audience's benefit is that five million dollar cap is lifetime, not lifetime, but in the aggregate. Meaning you can have multiple. You could a- finance five million dollar yeah. acquisitions using the the SBA program. So not a one time and you're done deal. But guys, you have visibility to a lot of transactions. You are seeing debt service coverage ratios and you're seeing valuations. And I'm curious what lenders are wanting right now and what you're seeing in terms of debt service coverage ratios and valuation multiples. What what are businesses being sold for right now? Start with valuations.
0: Generally speaking, Eric, I would say it's somewhere between three and the low fours is what I'm seeing on on, on average as far as multiples go. Is, is that in line with, with what you guys are typically seeing?
2: So yes, you know, candidly with the, the lending process, or sorry, the, the, the legal process, we don't have a ton of visibility to the financial underwriting and the valuations. And it's a question that frankly, we should probably ask more often because we have, you know, tremendous amount of data coming through our firm. My exposure right now is saying that most deals are getting done between like three and a quarter and four. I'm
3: uh, not really seeing that's a what lot of I would fi- have said, exactly the same range.
2: Yeah, not really seeing a lot of fives. I lean fairly heavily, and I'll, sh- I'll pull it up on the screen here for the audience's benefit, to this BizBuySell Insight report that's actually pretty good. And as soon as I can find Riverside here, I'll put it on the screen. But this is a, 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 helpful, little, a helpful little report that BizBuySell puts out. Quarterly. And it, they categorize things and like small business acquisitions grew 2% year over year in Q3, continuing steady gains, yada, yada. So I don't think I don't think they have their Q4 report yet, which makes sense. And let's see what they're saying on valuations. Says valuations remain flat. The average cash flow multiple sold on businesses declined 1.4%. while we'll average mo- revenue multiple inched up 1%. I would say those small. Changes to me indicate kind of nothing statistically meaningful. BizBuySell also, the the problem with their data, in my opinion, is that they see a lot of very small transactions. I think what we are looking at, both our firm, S&B Law Group, and Pioneer Capital, my guess would be, is what I consider to be like blue chip ETA. You know, people who are going out and buying high quality businesses most of them are 500k uh ebitda or ste but it, i would actually say the median is probably 750 to 1.5 million those are big transactions this this biz buy sell report like if you look at the average transaction size median sales price here that they're showing sales price asking versus sales price is 350 asking price against 330 sale price. So they're, they're factoring in a lot of really small transactions. It would be helpful for somebody with a lot of statistical visibility to blue-chip ETA like S&B Law Group and Pioneer Capital to put our heads together and actually create a report in the blue-chip ETA space. But that's what I'm seeing right now. What do you see in Matthias on debt service coverage ratios? And for the audience's benefit a debt service coverage ratio. De- first of all, define what is a de- debt service coverage ratio because I'm going to do a terrible job of it. And then tell us what you're seeing and what lenders want.
0: Great question, Eric. So as first as debt service coverage ratio is defined, essentially taking adjusted EBITDA as the numerator in the equation and then dividing that by debt payment. So payment on the bank note, the SBA a note, along with payments on the seller's note. If you're doing a deal where it's on a partial standby for the seller's note, with payment starting in year three after closing, most things will exclude that payment from the denominator on the debt service coverage. So the the adjusted EBITDA more or less is taking the EBITDA of the business and then adding back non recurring expenses post-acquisition, so essentially expenses that have run through the business historically. Maybe the seller has been expensing their personal vehicle or similar through the business and one that won't be applicable going forward. And then the denominators so is the bottom of the fraction, bank loan payments plus seller note payment.
2: Okay. So you're basically looking at how much money does the business make Or do we anticipate that it will make going forward after adjusting for things that will no longer occur? Like if we've got an absentee seller who's paying himself a salary or if his niece is on the payroll, or if we've got, you know, and also adjustments to the negative, right? Like if we've got a lease payment, that's below market because the seller owns the property, you know, you've got to adjust up for that. So basically you're trying to figure out how much money do we think this business is going to make going forward based on what it made in the past adjusting for changes against the debt payment of the business and that gives us a number and that number typically is what Matthias. and what are the banks looking for
0: that so the sba requirement is that has to be 1.15 or higher meaning 15 percent cash flow over debt service most things that i work with quantity of 1.25 or higher, meaning 25% cash flow over debt service, with the most subset cohort of banks being 1.50 or higher, meaning 50% cash flow over debt service.
2: And and what are we seeing buyers actually bringing deals at?
0: I would say the vast majority of the Elden thing are over 1.25 currently, g-
3: generally speaking. And how often is that, including the standby note? And just to clarify, it's a little bit of a leading question because I, I I'm curious your commentary of are, are there, are there situations where that partial standby note could be excluded? But you're looking at it thinking maybe that's not the best idea because in year three that that's going to be tight based on projections for where the business goes. Kind of one of those, just because you can, should you type of questions? Like how how do you factor in that, that partial standby note when determining the DSCR and whether a deal is advisable or not?
0: Great. Yeah. Phenomenal question, Kevin. Most buyers when they reach out and they come to me, they aren't modeling in the payments and the partial standby sellers new. What I've been telling people to do is a map of two different debt coverages. So if you as the buyer are planning to use the partial standby seller's note to show essentially a a row below what the debt service coverage would be when there's no payments on it, to show a fully loaded debt coverage with what debt coverage will be when you have to start making the payments. Yeah. But most people, when they approach me, that that's not taken into consideration. In all on- and also, in all honesty, as surprising as it may be for both of you, most banks aren't looking at that. If there's no payments on that partial standby seller's note for at least the first three years after closing, due in part to the fact that banks look three years out into the projection period, typically. So some will do two, but most do three. Yeah.
2: Interesting. Yeah, it's I think super, you'd have to be crazy. It's, am- to it's amazing to me, Kevin, that the SBA will approve a deal at one and an eighth debt service coverage ratio. Yeah, and I think you'd have to be out of your mind to buy a business at one and a sixteenth or whatever. You know, one point one six, you'd be nuts. I don't think it would work. I think it's way too skinny. And it's interesting that that's where they've set the bar. I know, and I, you know, Matthias, you know, your visibility to lenders is much greater than ours, but a lot of the bigger lenders won't, won't approve a deal unless it's north of one and a half. And you know every bank's different, right? So they've got their different things that they're looking for. Some are looking more heavily at debt service coverage ratio. Some are looking more heavily at you and your transferable skills. And so you know, it's not all quantitative. There's a lot of qualitative breakdown in the, the credit guidelines, but that, that's, that's surprising to me, Matthias. I did not know that the SOPs will allow it down to one and an eighth. Would you buy a business at one in yeah. the eighth Matthias?
0: <laughs> Phenomenal question, Eric. I personally would not.
2: There you have it. Perfect. I, perfect I, I tend to start it.
0: businesses instead instead of buying <laughs> them.
2: What's the, the the movie Old School where Will Ferrell is debating against James Carville on like a political science question, and he like blacks out and he like gives the perfect answer, and James Carvel's like. It's perfect. I've got no no response. So beautifully said, Matthias. I, I
0: need to watch the movie old school again. It's been a hot minute, Eric.
2: So, Matthias, let's let's close with talking about working capital in these deals, because I think that's such an important issue. And obviously, you know, from the lending perspective, or sorry, from the, the legal perspective, the business perspective, you know, working capital for the audience's benefit is the the money, the AR, and the inventory you know the stuff, the 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 grease in the wheels of the business, or the gas in the tank, or the tires on the car, whatever analogy the blood <laughs> in the body. It's what keeps the business going. Keep it going. Right? Keep rolling. Oh, I've got analogies on this. The, the cheese on the pizza. It's the, the I'd say it's More, the coal. The coal in the the pizza oven. Matthias, the coal <laughs> in the pizza. Okay. It's it, it's it's what. Grease is the wheel. So you close on an acquisition and you immediately have to make payroll, right? You've got employees that are expecting yeah. you to send them cash that Friday. Or you, have, you close on an e-commerce business and you've got customers that are expect, expecting you to mail them products. If you close on a business that's got employees and contracts and office furniture and a bunch of stuff, but it doesn't have any cash you're going to find yourself in a little bit of a pickle shortly after closing. And so in most sophisticated M&A transactions, small business M&A transactions, you'll negotiate working capital. It's a part of the business. In the absence of that asset, the business doesn't operate. So the valuation, the whole philosophical valuation and, and what you're buying is undermined. So in most instances, you get that. The problem is, in small business M and A, you oftentimes run into brick walls with sellers and sellers' counsel and sellers' advisors who don't appreciate that, understand it, or get it because it's their world and we're just living in it. We're just lucky to be there buying their amazing, you know, world-changing Adults. fencing company. Yeah, and so they'll say working capital Mathias sounds like a you problem, right? And now I'm buying a business, I got to figure out, again, we talked about personal financial statements and the like, I got to figure out how I'm going to close in this business and then make payroll and do the things that the business needs in the normalized course after closing. Talk to us about financing working capital. You mentioned it as a part of the sources and uses. I'm also familiar with an SBA lending product called an express loan. Tell us about the various... And I have a follow-up to that, but I'll stop there because obviously this is long-winded. But tell us about working capital financing, Matthias. So there are three ways that you can
0: get working capital into a deal, Eric. One of which you mentioned during the question is a segue leading up to it, which is having it negotiated into the purchase price. So basically establishing in the letter of intent that you're going to have a normalized level of working capital including the purchase, which could be a combination of cash, accounts, receivable, inventory, and and there can be different schools of thought as to how to arrive at that number. Some people decide to put it to the quality of earnings report and basically kick the ball down the road to the ninth inning. I I generally don't encourage that, not legal You can also have a a minimum range or like a minimum number and then mention that will be first up in the QB or you could have a range. The other ways that you can get working capital into the deal is you can have it financed into the FBA 7A acquisition loan. Generally speaking, most of the banks that I work with or have worked with don't want to finance more than the buyer group is putting as a down payment into the deal with the rationale being that if the FBA audits the file, it will basically look like the, the bank just gave the down payment back to the buyer group. The third way in which you can get working capital into the deal, back to the question that you asked, Eric, is there's that product called the FB Express line of credit, which is essentially a revolving working capital debt facility on which you make interest-only payments based on the amount drawn. And then in years four through year 10, generally speaking, after the revolving period end, during that point in time, you pay down the principal balance as it amortizes based on the amount drawn during that. And adjacent Be- comment to that before you pop in, Kevin, is those facilities go up to a half million dollars. The amount of the facility depends on the working capital needs of the business.
3: Yeah, so the bank will kind of offer what they think the right the right level is. How does that factor, if at all, into the DSCR calculation? Assuming it's undrawn at closing, is it is it not factored in, or does the bank take into account that loan capacity as if it's fully or partially drawn when determining the the DSCR for the deal? It would be
0: the, the, the second or the the latter. Banks okay. will look at if it were fully drawn, what the impact on, on debt it. coverage
3: would be. Got it. So it's it's looked at just like the 7A loan fully drawn as the the full debt the full amount of debt. Service for okay, that's correct. Honest.
0: And, and one think comment to mention for the benefit of the, the viewers or listeners is that that facility impacts that five million calculation. So, if you're mm-hmm. looking to take that half million express line of credit, you can only do 4.5 million to collectively total up the five million on the FBA 70 acquisition load. So, four and a half plus half million equals five.
3: And and break that down on the deals you're seeing, Matthias. How often are you seeing one over the other? How often are, are buyers bringing you deals where they've negotiated a, a solid level of working capital to run the business into the purchase price versus are are needing to actually finance it through the SBA loan?
0: Most buyers, generally speaking, the the subset that we can see on SBA Twitter and, and similar most typically have in their letter of intent that they're requesting to include normalized level of working capital. Some of them will kind of go into more detail in the LOI as to what they're expecting there. If it's a range or minimum to be firmed up in the QB. I'd say it's more pew and far between Kevin when there is no working capital expectation in the LOI. And I don't yeah. know if that mirrors up with what both you and Eric see but I'd say, I'd say it's more of a rarity typically when it's yeah. completely foregone altogether. And, and just to throw you guys a plug back, that's generally why I tell buyers before submitting the LOI to consult with legal counsel to make sure that you don't miss anything major, such as that. Yeah.
2: Well, and it's it's a tough issue, right? Because when I go to buy a pool installation business, right, they're building pools it's really capital intensive you need a lot of money up front to install pools and i take that deal to a lender and i'm getting the lender to approve it and they've got concerns about the working capital you know but but at this point in time all i have from the seller really is that three years of tax returns that you mentioned and the personal financial statements It's tough to figure out what this business is going to need in the, the normal course. And so it's a really yeah. tricky issue in small business M and a, when you've got a working capital intensive business, like many of these like asphalt paving or, you know, tree trimming, you need big machines. So Matthias, one of the the biggest things that I see, I think it's a mistake, frankly, that I see a lot of buyers, Make in the SBA vetting process is over prioritizing interest rate, right? And we're also, and it's important, right? I mean, you're going to financially underwrite a transaction, you're thinking about your debt service and how expensive it can be. I see buyers over prioritize interest rate, I see them over prioritize a few lenders who have fixed rate products. Talk to us about what a buyer should be looking for when they choose a lender.
0: Great question, Eric. The first and most important thing that I think is the experience of the lender, how yes. long they have been at their current institution or kind of more generally in SBA, search, on cash flow lending to begin with. And then also what their conversion rate is from term sheet delivery to approval. I, I think those are the most important factors.
2: And how do you, so I think what you're saying is certainty to close with the second part. And how do I make sure, you know, I had a client a year or so ago and he went to a big national lender directly and his file sat on this lender's desk for like two plus months, like crazy. And finally, in the end, the lender starts, picks up a file and starts asking all these questions that the buyer's like, what the heck's going on? Like, these are questions you should have asked two months ago you know yeah. and at this point his deals in jeopardy as a result of it how do i know that that's not going to happen you said diligence for the pull through rates how do i how do i do that
0: you can you can ask for re- references um from people like y- yourself or or other service providers that the states. You can ask the lender directly if they can put you as the buyer in touch with former clients that they've worked with to share their experiences if they're willing to do that. Of course, with bank confidentiality guidelines that may, may or may not be challenging. And you can just ask the lender directly what their culture rate is and, and generally speaking, what portion of deals that they issue term sheets for ultimately get approved.
3: And that's part of, part of what you as a broker would do, I think is alleviate a lot of that, that like extra make work for searchers to stay on top of bankers. Right. Because at the end of the day, I think if you do end up with a lender, like Eric's referring to, unfortunately you happen to have a bad closer, you know, whoever's running the file, it's the person that's constantly following up, that's hounding the bank, that's like, what else do you need? What else do you need for me? Let's get on the phone tomorrow. That's what's ultimately going to drive that deal through, right? Is kind of that, that tenacity, and perseverance. Correct. Correct.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent.
3: Yeah.
2: All right, it's, Matthias. This was fun. What final final words? And feel free to to plug. Pioneer Capital and anything else that you're working on where we can find you.
0: Final final words are fun from my side is that if you're a business buyer either in the early stages of the search process or for, further along that is approaching a deal, looking for financing with a debt need of a million or higher, I, I would definitely love to help you. Basically, as Eric mentioned sort start of this podcast, I cost nothing to work with since I get paid directly by the bank, and essentially my sole goal is to help facilitate a smooth process, start to finish, for the financing.
2: All right, awesome, Matthias. Thanks for coming on, man. That was fun.
0: Yep, always. Thanks for having me, guys. It was good chatting with you.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.